0: I first heard about borderline personality disorder 20 years ago in psychopathology class. I was 24. i had never heard of borderline personality disorder before. i had never even heard of personality disorders before. I remember the instructor telling us that personality disorders were the only disorders in the DSM that required six months of client data before you could diagnose someone with it. I thought to myself, six months? That's, uh, that's a long time. Why does it take so long? Contrary to this, he he also told us that we could diagnose depression and anxiety within a short five minute interview with a client and borderline personality disorder takes takes six months. That's weird, huh? And the symptom list was weird to me, too. I'd never heard of personality disorders. They seemed so strange to me. I'd heard of depressed people before, and I had experienced anxiety myself by then, but personality disorders sounded completely foreign to me, and I was sort of scared of them, to be honest. Then a year later at my internship, I had a very difficult client. She would alternate between making me feel like the best therapist in the world and making me feel like a worthless person, and I remembered that this was a red flag for borderline in that Borderline clients often make therapists feel this way. So I began assessing for Borderline with this client. And sure enough, after several months and after consulting with experts on Borderline, it seemed I had my first Borderline client. And then people told me to refer her to someone else because these clients are no fun to work with. But I found that I actually enjoyed the struggle with this client. It felt like real therapy to me. It, it involved all the things I enjoyed about being a therapist. Things like transference and countertransference and projective identification and corrective experiences and the therapeutic relationship and so on. But it was hard, hard work. She was exhausting and frustrating at times. And after our sessions, I often felt mildly traumatized by her. But ultimately, it was highly rewarding to work with her. The struggle was worth it because after months and years, her symptoms decreased. She found that she began to like herself. She found that she was able to trust others for the first time in her life. And my work with her was very meaningful to me in this way. But then I heard people talking at my agency and they they had also had borderline clients and they hated working with them. I heard them saying very hateful things, very judgmental things about them. They said it was a waste of time to work with borderlines because therapy just reinforces their dependent and dramatic nature. These therapists looked for ways to get rid of these clients, so I told them to send them to me because I liked working with them. And and since that time, I've worked with many borderline clients in my 20 years of being a therapist, some successfully and some not so successfully. I've read everything I can get my hands on regarding borderline. I've lectured on the treatment of borderline personality disorder, and all of my supervisees eventually need help with a borderline client, if not several borderline clients. I've even had borderline students before, actually. That might surprise you that sometimes people diagnosed with borderline who fit the criteria, they decide to become therapists, and so that happens at times, too. And then, I saw Borderline Personality Disorder being portrayed in movies. In Fatal Attraction, Glenn Close's character was identified by some to be indicative of Borderline. And as a result, people thought that Borderline people would try to kill you if you broke up with them. In the movie Girl Interrupted, the Winona Ryder character was supposed to have Borderline Personality Disorder. But to me, she just seemed a little depressed. And as a result of this popular movie, people got a very inaccurate representation of Borderline, in my opinion. Some people People even think that Darth Vader is borderline because of the way he behaved as a young man. For example, he loved Obi-Wan and then suddenly hated him. And he intensely loved Padme in a self-destructive manner, which is, you know, also somewhat indicative of borderline. But I think it's a little silly to equate Darth Vader as borderline. He doesn't really fit it. And then there was the movie Silver Linings Playbook. The Jennifer Lawrence character is supposed to have borderline, I think. They never actually said it in the movie, but it seemed pretty clear to me that they were trying to portray her as having borderline. And I think they actually accurately represented what a mild case of borderline looks like. That is, until the end of the movie, when, spoiler alert, they have a happy ending to the movie. And if the movie was to accurately portray borderline, there would have been a more nuanced ending, I think. But I would say of all the popular depictions of Borderline that I've seen, I would say Silver Linings Playbook is the closest to reality. But again, just know that they're depicting a very mild case of it. And then I started podcasting, and I would get emails about Borderline. Like this one from, from listener Kristen who is a psychology student, or at least was when she emailed this. She said, "'Can you do a podcast on borderline personality disorder? I've studied case studies and theories, but still cannot clearly summarize the disorder. I understand supposed causes of borderline personality disorder and that DBT is specifically used as a form of treatment. The clearest way someone has been able to summarize borderline personality disorder to me is someone who cannot take responsibility for themselves.'" I know there is a lot more to this and that some therapists see patients with borderline personality disorder as their worst nightmare because of suicide attempts and successes. Could you shed some light on this disorder? That's the end of the email from listener Kristen. And then I recently did an episode on psychodynamic self-analysis in which I analyzed my counter-transference during a difficult clinical moment with a borderline client. And then a patron of the podcast emailed me. She gave me permission to read the following. I just listened to this episode and wanted to tell you just how much I liked it. I was very much able to relate to the incident you described, as I have borderline personality disorder and my therapist has suffered much abuse from me over the years. I have lost count of how often I've told him that he's incompetent, has no empathy, doesn't understand anything, doesn't care, is callous, and a terrible human being. Even though I usually end up feeling really bad and remorseful when these episodes are over and resolved, Listening to your experience has given me more empathy for my long-suffering therapist. I was really surprised hearing you say that you like working with people who have borderline. I am sure an episode by you would do away with some of the stigma attached to this diagnosis. You have all of these impressionable students and novice therapists listening. I bet they could benefit from some less judgmental information about borderline personality disorder. Really, doing an episode on borderline would be good for the greater good of humanity and leave the world a better place. You should really, really consider it. And I would be eternally grateful. That's the end of the email from the patron. Well, since you're a patron, your wish is my command. So in this episode, I will read more from this anonymous email, and I will review the literature on borderline, which goes all the way back to Freud. And I will describe how to understand people with borderline personality disorder and how to treat them and how to cope with them and how to deal with people with borderline traits in your personal life. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed psychotherapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com com to become a patron of the podcast. Patrons of the podcast get access to exclusive episodes like this one, along with other various benefits and swag. And remember that 20% of your monthly pledge goes toward various charities that we support. So again, if you haven't already, go to patreon.com and become a patron of our podcast to get access to this episode, along with other exclusive episodes. Hello, patrons. We love you so much for contributing. You are super rad. All right, so let's read this email again. The patron wrote in and said, I just listened to this episode and wanted to tell you how much I liked it. She's referring to the psychodynamic self-analysis episode. I was very much able to relate to the incident you described as I have borderline personality disorder and my therapist has suffered much abuse from me over the years. So just chiming in here, it's awesome that you as a patron can admit that you have borderline. Some people have difficulty admitting it because they worry about the stigma and they worry about rejection. So good for you. This shows that your therapist and you have worked hard to help you to feel comfortable saying that. And for some people with borderline, they actually take a lot of comfort in having the label because it explains so much about their relationship problems. And also provides a guide for treatment and for uh, making your life better for yourself. So good for you. Getting back to the email. I have lost count of how often I've told him that he's incompetent, has no empathy, doesn't understand anything, and is a terrible human being. So again, chiming in. Again, you are extremely healthy to be able to recognize this, patron. Many people with borderline have difficulty observing the self. But you seem to observe your behavior easily and with differentiation. So again, good for you. Getting back to the email here. Even though I usually end up feeling really bad and remorseful when these episodes are over and resolved, listening to your experience has given me more empathy for my long-suffering therapist. So again, just responding to the patron here, it's clear that you, the patron, are able to reflect on your own behavior and take responsibility for yourself. So it bugs me that many clinicians believe that borderline clients have no remorse and that they have no conscience, and that they never take responsibility for their behavior. But of course, that's silly, right? So hopefully clinicians out there will benefit from your email, which I'm guessing that they will. Getting back to your email. I feel inspired to email him and thank him again for everything he's done for me. So just responding to that bit of the patron email. You know, that might actually help. Emailing him to thank him might actually help. I know it's not your responsibility to save him from his difficulties, but, but it might actually help. Not only would it potentially help him, but it might be a good exercise for you in that it helps you to deepen the relationship so that you can enhance future corrective experiences in therapy with him. So, you know, it, it, it couldn't hurt. Let's just put it that way. Getting back to your email here, the patron writes in, I have been so horrible to him so many times, and while I've improved in that department, I'm still really difficult to deal with. Maybe he's sorry for ever becoming a therapist. I will ask him, but he'll deny it. I mean, how would that sound? Yes, you've made me regret choosing my profession. He can't really say that. So just chiming in here in response to this little bit. This is a common borderline worry. Borderline clients often worry that their therapists secretly hate them but this is not likely true. If your therapist has stuck with you through thick and thin, your therapist probably has a deep compassion for you and probably likes you as a person. If they didn't have fondness for you, they would not likely have patience or compassion through all the difficulties. So try to reassure yourself that your therapist not only does not hate you, but actually likes you because this affirmation will enhance your corrective emotional experience and therapy with him. So feel free to ask him how he feels about you and also trust that what he says, if you know he says good things, then trust that those are in all likelihood accurate representations of how he feels. It's actually something that I've worked a lot with with borderline clients is helping clients to truly trust that when I say that I have compassion and I care, when I say that for the client to truly believe me. There's a part of the client that, deeply wants to believe that. And there's another part of the client that is deeply afraid of, of even wanting that because they fear that it's not actually true or that it will be taken away. And so they don't want to open themselves up to the vulnerability of that loss. And so they won't accept it uh, altogether. All right, so getting back to the email from the patron. I would love an episode about borderline personality disorder. I like joking with my therapist that he can't kick me out because no one else would take me on once they hear that I have borderline personality disorder. Of course, he's not allowed to kick me out anyway, but it's good to have some solid arguments against it. So just chiming in here. Actually, patron, he can kick you out. I hate to tell you this. There is no law or specific ethical code that prevents a therapist from terminating with a client. Therapists do it all the time for various reasons. It's rare, but it happens. For example, someone just told me that he and his wife were kicked out of marital therapy because the wife was conflictual with the therapist during a session. It happens. But therapists who work with borderline clients are usually the sort of therapists who would never terminate unless the client did something truly awful, like became physically violent or something like that. And for me, I can't remember having ever terminated with a client against their will, but other therapists are different. So your therapist technically can fire you as a client, but if he's the sort of therapist that specializes in working with borderline personality disorder, in all likelihood, he would never, ever do that to you in the way that I would never do that to a client. So not to make you paranoid, but just a little, just a little uh, feedback there. All right, getting back to patron email here. A lot of information out there is very negative, judgmental, and pejorative. It makes me feel bad about myself, and other people with borderline probably feel bad too. So just chiming in here. Indeed, I agree with you. There's a lot of terrible things being said about borderline clients. It's really mortifying to hear some of the things I've heard in clinical meetings. It's terrible. I think many therapists feel inadequate, and so they vent their insecurity by attacking their clients. It's really sad to me, actually. And it's evidence of undifferentiation and lack of supervision and consultation. And even non-clinicians hate borderline people as well. Here's a quote from the internet. I think I found it on Reddit. I sometimes hate my ex-husband who has borderline personality disorder. He made my life a living hell for more than a decade. After being driven to suicide, I decided to leave him. But he still takes no responsibility for his actions. I don't want to have anything to do with him. I have to protect myself, and he has no boundaries at all, unquote. So that's from the internet. Yeah, there are people out there that despise people with borderline for various reasons. So just getting back to your email, patron email. For example, there's a very popular DBT workbook available by Matthew McKay and Jeffrey Wood, which repeatedly uses the word manipulative, even though Marsha Linehan in her book dedicated several paragraphs about that very word and how using it is detrimental to the therapy and just not applicable in general anyway. So just chiming in here, yeah, even clinical literature can be hurtful and insensitive and inaccurate when talking about borderline, absolutely, and it's terrible, it's terrible. All right, so let's get into the history here. I love looking into the history of things. I don't know why, but I do. But before I do, I want to talk a little bit about the label of quote-unquote borderline. Writers use different language when discussing borderline. When describing clients, some use the phrase borderline client, or they just refer to the person as borderline. Like in the sentence, the borderline went to therapy. But some writers think this is too stigmatizing, since it labels the person as borderline, as if that encapsulates the entirety of the person. So they use phrases like, they use, instead, they use phrases like person suffering from borderline personality disorder, or something like that, rather than saying borderline client, or just borderline. In my opinion, I think we should absolutely contemplate our use of language and what our language implies, but I also tend to avoid political correctness. So I don't really know what to do with this one. So if my language offends, I apologize in advance. But to me, I think it's more important to reduce the stigma directly by educating people about borderline rather than just merely changing the label that we use. So I hope that this episode will reduce the stigma regardless of the labels that I use. All right, so let's get into the history. The term borderline was first introduced into the psychoanalytic community in 1938 by Adolf Stern. He was an American psychoanalyst, and he used the term borderline to describe patients who were on the border of psychosis and neurosis. Essentially, the term borderline refers to the client who exists on the border between schizophrenia and normal functioning. So that's the border, their their borderline between psychosis and normalcy. He saw these patients as having a strange mixture of healthy functions along with neurotic symptoms, psychotic symptoms, and character disturbances. And he was confused at this strange mixture of of, at times being quite healthy and at times being quite psychotic in some ways. With these borderline clients, he observed the following symptoms. He, He observed intense affect or intense emotions. He observed rapid shifts between paranoid rage and masochistic withdrawal. He observed idealization and then devaluation of objects, meaning that he saw these people love particular people and then then a moment later hate those people. He observed these people being very impulsive. He observed self-destructive behavior. He observed aggressive dependency. In other words, They were quite dependent on others and would be quite hostile with their dependency. And he he also observed threats to leave therapy under the slightest frustrations. So if there was a small frustration in the therapy, the, the borderline client would threaten to leave the therapy. Adolf Stern specifically wrote in 1938, quote, this borderline group of patients is extremely difficult to handle effectively by any psychotherapeutic method, unquote. So it's just interesting that even back in 1938, we have the first person who coined this term saying, these are very, very difficult clients to work with. All right, so just a few years later in 1942, Helen Deutsch also wrote about borderline. She was an Austrian-born Jewish psychoanalyst who fled from the Nazis and came to practice in the United States. She identified these patients, these borderline patients, as lacking a sense of inner self or cohesive identity. She found that these patients complained about inner emptiness and profound loneliness and like Adolf Stern, she too found that they were not entirely psychotic, since they maintained intact reality testing and non, in non-intimate social situations. So in other words, she found that when these patients were involved in regular life and weren't in contact with an intimate person, she found that these people appeared totally healthy and normal. But when they Got, became close with another human being, they started to emerge as psychotic. Again, this is where the word borderline comes from. The client is seen as being borderline psychotic. The client experiences a different reality when interpreting relationships, but the client experiences normal reality when in non relational situations in general. So, for example, the client might be completely normal at work and at the grocery store but when they come home they see every relationship with their family members in a highly distorted and negative manner so jumping forward just a little bit in time melanie melanie klein in the mid 20th century also wrote about borderline she was also an austrian born psychoanalyst and she practiced in england she was a she was a pioneering figure in object relations theory and she was a major figure in psychotherapy from the 1920s until her death in 1960. Her theory is sort of difficult to summarize, but in a nutshell, after she observed and studied many children, she theorized that children split their parents into a bad parent and a good parent, an image in their mind. You know, They have, they have an image of their bad mom and they have an image of their good mom. In this way, children compartmentalize the bad and good parents as separate people. Within the child's psyche, there exists a bad mother and a good mother and a bad father and a good father. This is done in an attempt to protect the good parent image from the bad parent image and to protect the good parent image from the child's intense disappointment and anger toward the the parent. So when the parent is being good, the child sees the parent as all good because they haven't matured yet. Uh, And children see things in black and white. But when the parent frustrates the child, the child sees the parent as all bad and reacts against the parent accordingly. The child cannot see the parent as possessing both good and bad qualities. Only one or the other. They see the parent as black or white in any given moment. But as the child develops, the child integrates these two images and begins to see people as mostly good with some bad qualities. That's, the mar- that's a marker of maturity is the ability to see people as being mostly good. And, you know, there's a couple qualities that are unfortunate. But for some children, they remain in this state of splitting others. They remain in this early childhood state of splitting others. And they see people as adults as either all good or all bad. So they grow up stuck in this phase. And as adults, they see people as either all good or all bad. And for some clinicians... This is a helpful way of looking at people with borderline traits. Due to childhood difficulties, the child never integrated their good parents and their bad parents, and they see everyone as either all bad or all good. If someone is being good, then the borderline client sees that person as 100% good. They love them and have nothing but good things to say about them. But if the other person is even slightly frustrating, the borderline client sees that person as 100% bad and reacts against that person with hurt and anger. So that's, that's what Melanie Klein had to provide to our understanding of borderline. Margaret Mailer also wrote about borderline clients. She wrote about borderline in the 60s and 70s. She was a Hungarian Jewish psychoanalyst who fled from the Nazis to Britain and then came to to the United States. And she specialized in working with children. She emphasized the way the mother behaved rather than only discussing the child's experience. You see, uh, up to this point, most theorists were discussing the condition of borderline from the patient's experience. But since Mailer knew a lot about the way children and parents interact, she started talking about borderline as a condition that existed in the relationship between the mother and the child. Since she started as a pediatrician rather than a psychiatrist, this helped her to notice this. And this was the beginning of a movement in psychotherapy to recognize the relational nature of psychopathology. In other words, instead of seeing issues as being isolated to individuals, some theorists were beginning to recognize that clients' issues were relational in nature, that pathology often emerged out of a dysfunctional relationship rather than emerging solely from the individual. And incidentally, this is the main linchpin of my program, the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University Seattle. We promote this idea of relationships, that through relationships, issues emerge. And through relationships, we can heal those issues. Okay, so we've talked about Adolf Stern, Helen Deutsch, Melanie Klein, Margaret Mailer, and now let's talk about Otto Kernberg. He is another major figure in the history of Borderline. Again, he was an Austrian-born Jewish psychoanalyst and a professor in the United States. Like many others in our early field, he fled Europe in, in in the 1930s to get away from the Nazis. He wrote about borderline a lot from the 1960s into the 1980s. He also wrote a lot about countertransference and the countertransference that therapists experience while working with borderline clients. Along these lines, Kernberg once wrote the following in 1965: When dealing with borderline or severely regressed patients, the therapist tends to experience rather soon in treatment intensive emotional reactions having more to do with the patient's transference than with any specific problem in the therapist's past. Thus, countertransference becomes an important diagnostic tool. That was actually in 1955, not 65. <laughs> In other words, what Kernberg is writing is that he believed that the difficult feelings that therapists feel while working with borderline clients, that these feelings were mostly caused by the client's transference. In other words, the client is to blame for the the therapist's feelings, and often the client is quite angry with the therapist, which produces the counter-transference feelings, and this anger is really against the client's parents. And the client was displacing this anger onto the therapist, and the therapist's countertransference was due to this transference of the client's feelings rather than the, an issue on behalf of the therapist. Because often the therapist will feel quite inadequate and quite worthless as a person when the borderline client attacks the therapist. And so Otto Kernberg is saying, no, no, don't, don't, don't think it's you, it's actually the client. And it was very common at the time for therapists to blame clients for their countertransference back then. It wasn't until very recently that therapists started to seriously recognize and admit that their countertransference was due to personal factors within the therapist, him or herself. And this is still a minority viewpoint in my anecdotal experience. Most therapists, in my opinion, still blame their clients for their countertransference. Now, having said that, when working with borderline clients, they tend to trigger us much more often than other clients do. But I don't think that it's useful to blame the client for my own countertransference. I think we should take responsibility for our issues and face them accordingly. But that's a conversation for another podcast. I and mean, I've actually had a podcast on of countertransference before. All right, so that's Otto Kernberg. Now let's go to James Masterson, who also wrote about borderline in and around the 1970s. He was an American psychiatrist born in Pennsylvania. And similar to Margaret Mailer, he highly emphasized the mother's role in the development of borderline. He emphasized that borderline clients have a deep fear of abandonment. And this is a key, key understanding in, in borderline. And this fear derived, this fear of abandonment derived from the mother being unavailable during the reproachment phase in early childhood. This is a key understanding of borderline. This is what I focus on, that borderline clients have a deep, intense fear of abandonment. This is a central feature of their condition. They interpret any slight distance as an abandonment by you. And this makes them feel terrible and alone and afraid, and they react accordingly with anger and hurt. But I'll get more into that later. All right, then around this time when Masterson was writing, in 1980, borderline personality disorder first appeared in the DSM. It was included in the third edition of the DSM, which was published again in 1980. Now, there are many, many more prominent therapists who have written about borderline there have been thousands of books and articles written about borderline. For example, a review in 1993 found that there were 4,000 articles on borderline. And there must be many, many more now in 2015. For example, when I look to the bookshelf on my right, which only contains, I don't know, about a third of my books, I see that two, two of my books are specifically on borderline. One's called Becoming a Constant Object in Psychotherapy with a Borderline Patient, and it's written by Cohen and Sherwood, published in 1991. And another book here, Transference and Psychotherapeutic Technique, teaching seminars on psychotherapy of the borderline adult. Again, this is by Masterson in 1983. And I have tens of other books with chapters dedicated to borderline. It's a, very to- it's a very popular topic in therapy literature because patients with borderline traits are highly confusing and frustrating for therapists, and they're also highly likely to go to therapy. But it would take too long to summarize all the chapters and all the books and all the history, so let's move on. So again, just to summarize the history, it, it began basically in the 30s. With a very rough understanding, kind of an alert, like, wait a second, we're 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 seeing a, a sort a, a common profile of a patient, and they, they tend to have in, intense emotions, and they tend to have a lot of difficulties with in with intimate relationships. They they almost seem psychotic in some ways, but in other ways they seem totally healthy, and so they seem to be on the borderline of psychosis and healthy. And then as we progress through the twentieth century. People start to really explore this. They start exploring how the relationship, early relationships in life might create borderline. And then people start saying, hey, you know, it's not so much that it's a condition of the individual person, but a condition of the relationships, a condition of the parenting, a condition that emerges out of a relationship. And then people start really looking at the, the counter transference that the therapist feels while working with borderline clients. And at first they really start saying, okay, look, the, the counter transference is the client's fault. It's not your fault. Uh, release yourself from that responsibility and try to distance yourself from that transference and, and that, and those feelings. And then other writers start coming out and saying, no, it's, you have to look at yourself and you have to take responsibility for your feelings. And so, in a nutshell, that's the history of, of Borderline. And then moving into today, I would say that people still are quite baffled by Borderline, although there's a lot more research on it. And I would say that of the vast majority of clinicians that I know really would prefer not to work with Borderline clients. You know, you might have an idea in your head of like, oh, people who don't want to work with Borderline, these these, these sort of therapists must be uncaring callous therapists, and that's really not true. I, I know therapists who are extremely compassionate people are very loving and very caring, but because of the amount of counter-transference that a therapist experiences while working with someone who has borderline, because of that, they won't, they, even though they're very compassionate and caring, they still won't work with people with borderline because because borderline clients can actually traumatize you the the emotional field that's created can be very intense and for some therapists it's it's just too much and it's it can be quite intense and so so it's not it's not just the uncaring therapists that choose not to work with borderline clients having said that i will also say that some therapists are you know on the spectrum of caring not so caring and they are not likely to be the sort of therapists that would want to work with borderline clients. And so they are perhaps, you know, more in the CBT camp and that kind of thing. Not that CBT therapists don't care about their clients, but I think if you're in the field, I think, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) hope I didn't uh, offend any therapists out there. Okay. So that's the history. Now, number two, so number one is history. Number two, how do we understand borderline? You know, how can we describe it? It's very difficult to describe borderline personality disorder. If you ask 10 therapists to describe it, you're, you're going to get 11 different answers. And some clinicians don't even believe that the disorder exists at all. They think it's just a figment of our imagination or they avoid the label altogether. They avoid the borderline label altogether because they believe it has too much stigma. But in my opinion, we should try to reduce the stigma rather than deny its existence or to not use the label. Now, you probably know someone or you've known someone in the past who fits the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. They're often labeled as being psycho or controlling or overly emotional or clingy or dramatic. Some people describe borderline clients as people who feel emotions more intensely or have difficulty regulating their emotions. In the DSM-5, it describes borderline personality disorder as a pervasive pattern of instability of interpersonal relationships. So again, a pervasive pattern of instability of interpersonal relationships, and also instability of self-image, instability of emotions. And it's marked by impulsivity beginning in early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts as indicated by five or more of the following. So again, just to review that, a pervasive pattern of instability in relationships, instability of self-image, and instability in emotion. And it begins in early adulthood. And common symptoms are frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. So there's that abandonment word. Another symptom, a pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating between extremes in idealization and devaluation. So this is what I was talking about earlier, a pattern of unstable and intense relationships with people that alternate between the client being extremely idealizing of the person and then extreme devaluing of the person. So in one moment, they are totally in love with that person and want to spend all their time with them. And in the next moment, they hate that person. And this is exaggeratory to some extent, but, but um, this is you know, one of the symptoms of borderline in the DSM-5. Number three, another symptom, Id- an identity disturbance, an unstable self-image or a sense of self. This might be kind of confusing if you don't really understand our field. You know, what's an unstable self-image? And I'll get more into that later. Number four, impulsivity in at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging. Another symptom of borderline is affective instability or emotional instability. Another one is chronic feelings of emptiness. And if you've never had a feeling of emptiness, you won't know what they're talking about. It's like, what do you mean an empty feeling? Well, people with borderline often will report that they feel empty on the inside. And it has to do with that uh, unstable self image. And I'll get into more of that later. Another symptom of borderline personality disorder in the DSM-5 is inappropriate and intense anger. So this isn't isn't common to all people with borderline, but it, it is common to some. Another symptom is transient stress-related paranoid ideation or severe dissociative symptoms. It's a little strange to me that they lump the, these two into the same line, but to me they're two different ideas. One is, is that uh, borderline clients often are quite paranoid in their thinking about other people. And this is where that psychosis, where that delusional, borderline delusional comes in. In that people with borderline will be because they're so worried about being abandoned, and because they're so sensitive to being abandoned, and because they have this part of them, this arrested development in their early childhood, when they feel frustrated with someone and when they feel hurt by someone, they will tend to rewrite the story. In a way that doesn't fit reality that much, and and everyone does this, right? When when as a couples therapist, I'll tell you, it's universal that when people get into arguments and then later recall the argument, both people will remember different a different story. You know, husband and wife has a fight. They come into therapy. I, I ask the hu- wife, to, t- tell me how the fight went. She tells me a story. I ask the husband, tell me. They will tell me completely opposite stories. And why is that? Is it because they're delusional or one of them is delusional or they're lying? No, it's because it's a normal human thing to remember certain things that favor you and to unremember things that don't favor you. It's also common sometimes to just make stuff up in your head that fits your story. And if you've ever been in a fight with someone in your life, you might have experienced this where Again, you get in a fight with your partner, and then later on, they tell you, and then you said, and you're thinking, I never said that. There's no way I said that. You're making that up, and the person is convinced that you did say it. So it's not delusional in that way. It's not psychotic. It's just the way our brains work. We don't. Our memories are highly malleable and, and are subject to any number of issues, including a, a motivated bias to change the story to fit the the narrative we want to tell. Well, borderline people are are no different. And when they become extremely hurt by someone, they will remember a story that is not reflective of reality. And because they're so hurt and they experience pain so much more than non borderline people, their stories tend to be more distorted. And so, it can appear paranoid at times. It can, it can, it can appear almost schizophrenic at times. And this is where that borderline comes in. You know, they're borderline schizophrenic, they're borderline psychotic. And that's what clinicians observe is the patient will come in and say, okay, last session, you said this and this and this. And the therapist is saying, no, I did not say that. There's no way I said that. And the borderline client has said, yes, you did say that. Yes, you did. Well, you know, if that's all you went off of, you would say, well, clearly this person has a thought disorder and they're delusional and da 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 And, but if you look into it more fully, you realize, no, they're, they're just really hurt. And like anyone, they start remembering a, a particular narrative and that they become quite convinced of the narrative because it fits the way that they feel. And it's not delusional, it's, it's just a symptom of how hurt they feel. And so that's an important understanding, and, it, and it, it's one of those things that really confuses therapists that I work with. They'll say, I don't understand why they do this. Well, when you understand how painful it is to be borderline, when you understand the amount of pain that they feel, the amount of interpersonal hurt that they experience, it, it's, it all makes sense to me anyway. And then this other symptom that they list here in DSM-5 is severe severe dissociative symptoms. And this is due, again, to the amount of pain they feel. When you feel a lot of interpersonal pain, it can be traumatic. And one of the things that your brain can do is to dissociate and to separate yourself from reality so that you can cope. So some people with borderline will will dissociate. And it's generally understood that personality disorders cannot be applied to children and teens because their personalities have not fully developed, and they are therefore too volatile to pin down and to diagnose with a personality disorder. So again, with children, particularly children, and for the most part teenagers, we don't apply personality disorder diagnoses to them, even if they appear to fit their criteria. And the reason is because children's personalities aren't fully formed yet a common thing cl- clinicians will say is that all teens are borderline and and so therefore no teens are borderline if that makes any sense it's a, a common joke it's like well aren't all teens borderline to some extent <laughs> having said that I have worked with what some clinicians call budding borderlines in other words teenagers who are who are becoming borderline these teens are, are much more dramatic than normal. They might use sex as a quick way to get love and attention. They might regulate They might regulate their emotions through cutting. They might binge on alcohol and other drugs to regulate their emotions and their interpersonal relationships. They probably have very difficult relationships with their parents. They might become suicidal and even become hospitalized. They often have eating disorders. They often run away from home. But again, for some teens, this is just a phase and a product of their underdeveloped personality or a product of their family life. So there's no way to know if this pattern, if, if it presents in a teenager, there's no, there's no way to know if the pattern will persist into adulthood. But I've worked with teens who did eventually demonstrate a persistent and ongoing personality of borderline. I have worked with some teenagers, some budding, some budding borderlines. As teenagers that did indeed seem to develop the disorder later on. But I've also worked with the opposite. I've I've worked with some seeming budding borderlines who later on didn't have any of the symptoms. And so you really can't tell when it comes to teenagers. One study found that 30% of adult patients with borderline personality disorder began self-harming when they were 12 years old or younger. And another 30% initiated self-harm between the ages of 13 and 17. So again, 60% of adult borderlines report having, cut, having started cutting before the age of 17. So clearly, adult borderlines started their suffering when they were teenagers or even younger. And I assume that borderline personality disorder often emerges when people are young and as as they experience the intense difficult emotions, they turn to various extreme coping strategies such as cutting. So let's get into the research here. Research finds that misdiagnosis is common with borderline because the DSM does not sufficiently describe the condition and personality disorders are generally difficult to understand so again research has found that there's a lot of misdiagnosis of borderline either people doing false positives or false negatives. The DSM-5 estimates that between 2 and 6% of the population qualifies for the diagnosis. So it's interesting, you know, it's it's a good chunk of the population 2 to 6% in all likelihood qualifies for the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. So it's, you know, it's really quite common. If, if, it's, if we say it's 3 or 4%, I think that's what about 1 in 30 or 1 in 40 people will have borderline. The DSM also states that it tends to arise, that borderline tends to arise in early adulthood and that the symptoms reduce as people age. For example, studies have shown that about 50% of patients with borderline personality disorder no longer qualify for the diagnosis after 10 years. So many borderline clients get better over time, according to research, with or without treatment. Also, research shows that borderline personality disorder seems to run in families. So it seems to have a genetic component, as with many diagnoses. Also, 75% of people diagnosed with borderline personality disorder are female. So again, 75% of those diagnosed with borderline are female, 25% are male. In my field, if you say borderline, people assume you're talking about a female client. But many borderline clients are male, but they're often not labeled as borderline. Male borderline clients often get misdiagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder or antisocial or bipolar, or something else, mostly because many clinicians cannot fathom that a man could have borderline because it's not talked about enough. And the vast majority of descriptions of borderline involve female clients. In fact, I can't remember having read ever a description of a borderline client who was a male. I'm sure I've read, but I can't remember one. There's a chance I've never read one, actually. So, okay, I've read you the symptoms in the DSM, And if you're not familiar with borderline, you're probably still confused. I was thoroughly confused when I read the diagnosis for the first time 20 years ago. You have to experience someone with borderline to truly know what it's like. But in in an attempt to describe it, I thought I would talk in a more real-life way about it rather than just just providing the DSM diagnosis. So there are many stories I could tell you about borderline. And the first thing I'll start with is the common thing that I hear in my field. A common thing I hear in my field is that you should avoid borderline clients because they tend to sue you in court. This is a common belief that people have in my field, that borderline clients will find something wrong with you and take you to court for it. I don't know the data on this, but I have, I have not found this to be true. But I can see how people would think this because borderline clients can become very angry and that can be very scary to people. And when they get angry and scary, therapists tend to start worrying about a lawsuit because therapists in general are somewhat paranoid about lawsuits. And anecdotally, when it comes to the more extreme borderline clients, they will tend to have a history of legal battles. So for some clients, it it is something that actually happens, but it's actually not as common as people think. And those legal battles might be custody battles or false allegations of abuse or lawsuits against former employers, that sort of thing. But that's just for those with extreme symptoms. It's not very frequent. Plus, it's not often that they will sue you as a therapist because you don't, you're not likely to get into the crosshairs because you're trying to help. Whereas if you're the ex husband or ex-wife of somebody, then, you know, people take people to court anyway in those situations. And if you have borderline traits, you're more likely to do that as well. Okay. So the other thing you'll hear and the patron emailing in refer to this is you'll hear clinicians talking about how manipulative borderline clients are. These clients, these borderline clients get labeled by clinicians and family members as manipulative and devious and to some extent they even get labeled as being evil. And these are destructive labels and they're not accurate. Rather than seeing them as manipulative, manipulative or evil, I think it's more helpful and more accurate to see their controlling behavior as a desperate request for security. This is an important distinction. They're not being difficult for difficulty's sake. They're being difficult because they're desperate for security and they're desperate for attachment. When they feel secure, they don't attempt to control their relationships. But when they're triggered, they feel terrible about themselves and then they become desperate. We all have felt desperate at some point in our life. And these people just feel that much, much more often. For example, let's say, your boy, let's say your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or wife or someone close to you. Let's say that person makes fun of you at a party. You're at a party and that person makes fun of you and you feel humiliated and that you your feelings are hurt. So on the way home with that person, with your husband or wife, you might bring it up. And if your partner says something like, oh, come on, can't you take a joke? Then you might feel even more hurt and you might get even more angry. And you might not know what to say, so you become quiet. You might be in a bad mood for a while. We've all had moments like this. You're not being manipulative. You're just trying to communicate that you're hurt, and it's natural that you feel hurt. And you want your partner to apologize, but you don't know how to ask for that. But when it comes to people with borderline traits, they feel this way much, much more easily. Little things will hurt them. And when they feel hurt, they get sad and angry, just like anyone else. And when you feel perpetually hurt and angry the way a borderline person does several times a day, these emotions become compounded upon each other, more hurt and more anger, and it all just builds up without any relief. And the next time your partner hurts you, you explode because you've been holding it all in. You could call it, you could call this manipulative and controlling, but a more accurate phrase is this is a desperate attempt for attachment security. It all makes sense when you see it in that light. Because why would someone be manipulative and controlling to people? Because it pushes people away. And everyone wants security and attachment. So why would they sabotage themselves? It's because they are feeling something that all of us feel, but just in a much more extreme manner and in in a way that becomes self-destructive. So again, you'll hear that borderline clients tend to take you to court You'll also hear clinicians talking about how manipulative they are and controlling. And another thing that we can say is that, and I find this to be actually accurate, is that borderline people, people with borderline traits, they often couple, they often will marry or you know enter into a couple with people who are emotionally distant and withdrawing. I've seen this quite frequently, actually. An emotionally distant person is the perfect fit for them because these people are often just as insecure as they are, but they resort to emotional withdrawal rather than overreactivity. People with borderline traits often look like the crazy one in the relationship. So you have the withdrawing person and the borderline person, and the borderline person will look quite crazy, you know, colloquially, and the withdrawing person will look quite sane. But in reality, the withdrawing person is just as insecure as the borderline spouse. But they hide it better. The withdrawing person hides it better. So what you'll usually see is the borderline spouse will complain about how cold their partner is. And the other spouse will complain about how sensitive and negative their partner is. So the withdrawing partner will complain about the borderline traded person that the borderline person is too sensitive and too negative. And then you'll hear the borderline person saying to the withdrawing person that the withdrawing person is is very hurtful and very cold. But both of them usually come from a childhood of abandonment and rejection or neglect. And their defense mechanisms are just mere reflections of each other. While one person becomes overreactive and highly sensitive, the other person withdraws from sensitivity. I find that the borderline spouse will cope with these pain with these painful feelings by frequently asking for reassurance that the other spouse loves them and the distant withdrawing spouse copes with this pain by shutting down emotionally and punishing their spouse with their own withdrawing behaviors. Now this is a simplistic uh, generalization not every person with borderline traits couples with a withdrawing person, but it's a presentation that I've seen often. And I've seen it so often that I, I've developed a whole method of helping couples like this. And, and I've actually seen a lot of success. And, and a big part of that success is understanding how to detect them. All right. So as a way of expanding our understanding, let me read some accounts from, from Reddit about Borderline. Reddit has a lot of different users. A lot of intelligent people use it. And there are some very, I think, illuminating accounts of what it is like to actually have borderline. So here's a post by someone who was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, according to them. Quote, My personality is different from others who are normal in the sense that I don't have a stable personality. If someone asks me to describe my personality... I would say that I'm sensitive, caring, and sometimes a bit paranoid. But you see, the only reason I would describe my, my personality that way is because that is what people have told me that I'm like. If someone were to ask me what I personally think about myself my, uh, and my personality, regardless of others' opinions, I would not know how to answer that. At my very core, I don't have a stable personality. I have no sense of self or sense of self-worth. I rely on other people's opinions to define my worth and who I am. If someone tells me that I am a great person, then that is how I define myself. Likewise, if someone tells me that I'm a loser, then that is how I define myself. My sense of self flip-flops back and forth depending on what people think of me. My sense of self and sense of self-worth can change multiple times in a day. End of quote. So I think this Reddit user describes very well and very eloquently and very... With, with a lot of wisdom, what it feels like, what this, you know, I said earlier that I would describe to you what it feels like to not have a sense of self or to feel empty on the inside or to not have a stable personality. This person really describes it. You know, he's, he or she says "At my very core, I don't have a stable personality. I have no sense of self or sense of self-worth. I rely on other people's opinions to define my worth and who I am. You know, when we're young, this is how we are in general. We don't have a sense of self, but as we grow older, we develop that. And for non-borderline people, it might be hard to imagine this, but some people do not have a firm grasp on who they are as a person. We develop our sense of ourselves as children. And when our development is compromised, we might not ever really develop a sense of self. And this results in people having difficulty reflecting on their experience and knowing who they are and what they want. Essentially, they're stuck at an infantile stage of self-development. You know, young children don't really have a firm grasp on who they are, as I said earlier. They define themselves through others. If mom is upset, then I am upset. If mom is happy, then I am happy. But if we are given proper parenting over time, we develop a sense of who we are independent from other people's opinions. But for borderline clients, they were never given that opportunity. And consequently, they don't really know who they are or what they want. And it's frightening to them. They feel empty on the inside. And they grasp at other people to help define themselves, right? And this rarely works out well. And when they are asked, what do you want? Who are you? They don't really know how to answer that question because they're waiting for someone else to tell them what they want and who they are. It's weird. With some borderline clients as a way of gauging their sense of self, I will simply ask them to draw something. I ask them to draw anything they like. For some borderline clients, this creates a lot of anxiety because it's too open-ended. There's no indication about what I want. And since they're hyper-anxious about being rejected, they freeze with fear. They don't know what to do. It's like asking a two-year-old to map out their career. They don't, know, they don't have any sense of themselves yet. They don't know how to reflect on themselves and, and wonder what they want, independent from what other people want for them. Now, borderline clients will differ in their degree of their sense of self, so it's not as if every borderline traded person has the same uh, lack of sense of self. In fact, I would say that some have a somewhat developed sense of self, and while others have very little sense of self. And some borderline clients will have a sense of self in some situations while not in others. So it's complicated, as with all things related to borderline. But anyway, the the, the thing to remember is that if you're not borderline, you will not really ever understand what, the, the, what this is like. This is not something, you know, when I described earlier about being sensitive. We, we all get sensitive. Borderline people are just particularly sensitive because they're suffering quite a bit. Well to try to explain to a non-borderline person what it's like to not have a sense of self is actually that's a tough that's a tough sell. It's a tough it's tough for people that have a sense of self to really understand what it would be like to not have a sense of self. Essentially again if, the takeaway is that they they can't look to you know ask yourself if you don't have borderline ask yourself are you a good person? Well, if you don't have borderline You'll you'll be able to answer that question. You might not be able to answer it right away, but you'll be able to say, oh, "Okay, well, yeah, I'm a good person because da 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 because I'm a good father, I'm a good mother, I, I'm a good friend, and yeah, sometimes I'm not perfect, but but I'm I'm a good person. I, I know that." For people with borderline, this question actually is quite confusing to them because they don't actually have the ability to turn around and look at themselves because they haven't been given the relational experiences as a young child to develop that sense of themselves of who they are they haven't been mirrored as as the parents haven't mirrored them properly part of the development of the self part of this development of you know who we are as a person is defined as we grow up and our and our parents and our family members and our friends actually reflect to us who we are and we internalize that and that sense of self gets developed over time based on our relational experiences that are that are positive for us, or at least not traumatic for us. But if we don't really have that, if we're abandoned and neglected, we never actually develop that sense of self. We don't have the ability to look at ourselves and, and really reflect. You know, ask a three-year-old to, to reflect on their mood, and they won't be able to do it in general. You ask a three-year-old to say, like, you know, say you're, the three-year-old is throwing a tantrum. They're really upset. And you were to walk up to the three-year-old and say, you know, how are you feeling right now? Well, they, they don't really know. They just know that the world really sucks. And, the, if, and if you said, well, I know for you right now, the world, you're having a tantrum for, you know, surely you won't feel this way in an hour. You'll, you'll be okay in an hour. Because you know that from an outsider that they will be okay in an hour. They only have tantrums that last for five minutes. But the child does not know that because they haven't developed that ability to reflect on the self, to reflect on their tantrum and say, huh, I wonder if this is accurate. And I wonder if it'll change over time. As you get older, when you have a mini temper tantrum or a mini mood swing, you hopefully have the ability to turn and look at yourself and say, huh, I think I'm in a bad mood right now. And I'm probably seeing the world through a distorted lens. And in an hour, I'll probably feel better. Or maybe I need a Snickers bar or something. Or maybe I just need a break or I need da da da. You know, you know how to reflect on the self. Well, for people with borderline traits, they lack this ability in general. They have a really hard time looking at, the, at themselves. And this is, this impairs the ability to regulate your emotions and to engage in a give and take with other people. Because when you are in a close relationship with someone and you're in a bad mood, for instance, or your feelings are hurt and you are reacting in a certain way, then you will react, and then your partner will look at you and, and be hurt potentially by your actions. And if you don't have the ability to say, oh, I'm sorry, I hurt your feelings. Maybe I'm in a bad mood right now, or maybe I'm being unfair right now. I don't know. I feel like I'm being fair, but history has shown me that sometimes when I feel like I'm being fair, I'm, not, I'm actually being unfair. Well, people with borderline traits actually don't have that ability. They, it's not that they don't want to reflect on the self. They actually cannot reflect on the self. And this is a key in, important understanding of people with borderline. You know, if if you're in a relationship with someone who has borderline, it'll seem as though they, quote unquote, never take responsibility. And we've heard someone say that before. You know, that people with borderline never take responsibility for their behavior. Well, it's not that they don't take responsibility by choice. They don't take responsibility because they lack the actual ability to reflect on the self in the same way that a two-year-old lacks the ability to reflect on the self. When you have a two-, three-year-old that is abandoned and neglected in a particular way, they never actually develop that ability to know who they are and the ability to reflect on the self. So it's not manipulation on purpose. It's it's a, it's a a lack of a capacity in actuality. And so when you're interacting with these sorts of people, to call them manipulative and to call them controlling and to call them uh, someone who doesn't take responsibility for themselves is really inaccurate. And it's unfair because it doesn't take into account the reality of their sense of self. Okay, so another common feature that the Reddit person is representing in their post is that borderline clients are quote-unquote paranoid at times the reddit writer said i i get paranoid at times that's how she put it this person is likely referring to the way he or she is paranoid about relationships he or she probably has highly distorted and negative thoughts about intimate relationships this can look like schizophrenic paranoia in that it's extremely disconnected from reality and the person has difficulty being convinced that their perceptions are distorted. We've been over that already. But just to highlight what this person was saying again, they they say here that I sometimes get a bit paranoid. <laughs> um, and so it, it usually has to do with relationships. So for instance, someone with borderline traits will commonly believe that their their romantic partners secretly hate them, or their therapists secretly hate them, as we talked about before, or their partners are secretly trying to get away from them, or that their partners will never really love them, or that their partners, okay, fine, their partner says that, you know, my husband says he loves me, but he doesn't really love me the way that I want him to love me. This is a a frequent, quote-unquote, paranoia you know this you're essentially irrationally believing negative things about reality without any evidence you know if you're paranoid that the FBI is following you but you don't actually have any evidence of that that's paranoia right and that's again why early early observers called these people borderline psychotic or borderline schizophrenic is because d- people with borderline traits can be highly quote unquote delusional about relationships and believe certain things. So say you're in a relationship with someone who has borderline traits and you truly love them and you truly care about them and you are truly dedicated to them and you're never going to leave them and you've never planned on leaving them and you're in to win. Well, with no, regardless of how hard you try to prove that to that person, regardless of how many tests you, you prove to be loyal to this person, the person with borderline traits, even at the slightest trigger, will believe that you're going to leave them. And they'll be very hurt by that, naturally. I mean, if you believe that your spouse is just going to leave you at the smallest provocation, then you're going to be very hurt by that. You're going to be like, wow, really, you're going to leave me over that? But it all begins with this paranoia that the person's going to leave you. And so that's when people with borderline traits tend to react. They'll react with hostility because they, they feel hurt. They feel justified in being hostile because they feel very, very hurt because of the, the highly distorted perception of abandonment. And they, they might over time start turning to cutting themselves because they're so hurt by the seeming long stretch of abandonments from everyone around them. I mean, if you walk around every, all day, every day, feeling abandoned by everyone who you have given so much to, and you do this 365 days a year, eventually it's going to take a toll on your soul and you are going to be in such a bad place emotionally that you're going to turn to very you know, extreme measures to regulate your emotions. And one of the ways you do that is through cutting or through suicidal ideation or through drugs and alcohol, or through sex, or through gambling, or or something. You're going to turn to something to alleviate that pain, because you're in so much pain. So the same person on Reddit also wrote the following, quote, My mental health put a significant strain on a two-year relationship I had a few years back. I was constantly paranoid. I constantly needed assurance, and I constantly wanted to hang out. Throughout the whole relationship, I was so surprised that anyone could ever love me. Ultimately, my mental health caused us to end our, end the romantic relationship. For this reason, I keep relationships strictly platonic for now. And if I ever do enter into a romantic relationship, it will only be after I am further along in the recovery process." Unquote. So essentially this Reddit writer is saying, "I was in a relationship and my borderline Issues put a lot of strain because I constantly needed assurance that this person loved me. And it put such a strain on on the relationship that it ended. And so now I don't actually enter into romantic relationships because I know that my borderline will kick in and will make everyone miserable. So this person has already recovered quite a bit and or is only mildly borderline. And so they have the ability to reflect so you, you you can tell that this Reddit user has a sense of self because he or she is actually able to reflect on their experience in a in an honest way in a accurate way perhaps and so so you can see that there are degrees as to how how much someone has a sense of self, having said that i've experienced the full range of degree i've I've seen people with borderline that have. Ze- seemingly zero sense of self. And I've seen people with borderline that have a r- fairly robust sense of self. So it, it's, it's not as if all people with borderline have no sense of self. And this is all in line with observations made by Helen Deutsch in 1942. Remember I was referring to earlier in that this person who was writing in Reddit is saying that he or she can, can function well in platonic relationships but they become pseudo-psychotic and paranoid in intimate relationships. So this goes way back to the beginnings of psychoanalysis and the understanding of borderline. And this is you know, evidence that borderline is, is a fairly stable phenomenon within the human experience. When we hear descriptions being very similar across time and across many people, and across cultures, we can say that this is a feature of the human experience, not unlike depression or anxiety, something that is worth its own category. People that will criticize personality disorders will say that clinicians are just making it all up. But if you've actually experienced a number of people who have borderline traits, you will say, oh, no, 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 this is a thing. <laughs> this is, this is a, a discrete thing that is of the human experience. Also, this is all in line with what Masterson emphasized in the 1970s. This Reddit writer is saying that they often need assurance that their intimate partner is not abandoning them. This person, this Reddit person, is highly worried about being abandoned and left behind. And deep down, they believe that they are unlovable. But this only happens in intimate relationships. With other people, they're fine. It's not until their relationship trauma is triggered by an intimate other that they become paranoid and overly sensitive to rejection. The same person on Reddit again also wrote, quote, My family has always been rocky due to abuse that occurred in my household by my father, unquote. So it's common for people with borderline personality disorder to have a history of abuse. It, it really makes sense. If you're made to feel worthless as a young child, if you're made to feel abandoned and unloved, then it makes sense that you would carry that feeling into adulthood, right? All right. So here's another person on Reddit. They wrote, quote, as a mental health professional, my borderline traits give me some some distinct advantages. I'm very sensitive to how people are feeling, and I often pick up on emotions that a patient may be experiencing when they're not even aware of it. This allows me to be extremely empathetic. Of course, being borderline and working in my field has its drawbacks, too. I get extremely emotionally invested in people. It's also difficult to have people who I've developed these strong emotional connections with to be coming and going from my life all the time, unquote. So this Reddit person is saying that they're a mental health professional and they have borderline. This is, this is not uncommon being borderline actually might make you attracted to psychology because as you go to therapy yourself and as you learn about relationships, you might actually say to yourself, huh, maybe I should enter the field and actually help other people with this. Also, as this person is pointing out, which I hadn't ever thought about before, that this person is saying that their borderline traits actually makes them extremely sensitive to what other people are feeling. And be, you know, perhaps because they grew up with a lack of sense of self, they became very good at gauging what other people were thinking and feeling. This is a common trait for people with borderline, is that they become very good at reading other people's feelings and, re- and reading the state of other people and being able to figure out what's going on inside of them emotionally. And what happens, because they're so invested in what other people think of them. They pay a lot of attention to that and they become quite skilled. The downside to that is that people with borderline, when they're angry at you, they know how to hurt your feelings very well. This is something that's quite common to people with borderline traits is, you know, take me for an example. I'll just come clean and say, I, I'm not on the borderline uh, spectrum, or at least I'm not much. And so if someone were to get into a fight with me emotionally, I would probably flounder trying to figure out a way to hurt their feelings. I wouldn't be very good at it because I don't do that very often. At least I would hope I don't. So it's not something that I engage in very often and it's not something I think about. But people with borderline, because they are so frequently getting their feelings hurt, And since they so frequently feel hostility towards other people because their feelings are so hurt, they are frequently in a state where they are thinking about ways to hurt the other person's feelings to get back at them, because it's a natural human tendency to seek revenge when you are extremely hurt. And so over time, they become very, very adept at being able to find out what hurts other people's feelings. And as they get to know you, they might even be unconsciously picking up on what hurts your feelings. As I've experienced people with borderline traits in my life, both personally and professionally, I can tell you that the, the most hurt I have ever been in my entire life by far has been people with borderline traits. It's quite a distinctive skill that they have to, to be able to hurt your feelings even when you know that they're not right. You know, I'm a clinician, so I know when someone has borderline. It's not hard for me to detect it. And yet, even if I can say, "No, no, don't listen to them. They have borderline. They're just hurt. They're just they're just venting. They're, what they're saying about you isn't true. They will find a way to tell me something about myself that actually is true. They'll they know where to push. <laughs> they know my weak spots. They know the places to push and the way to say it. In a way that I will actually believe it and it'll destroy me in that moment. This is another thing that people will talk about when they talk about people with borderline is how, how hurtful they can be. You know, they might use words like how evil they can be or how psycho they can be. And again, it's not because they're antisocial and lack empathy. That is not it. It is because they are so hurt. They're so much in pain, and they believe that you have abandoned them in a fundamental way. And when someone does that, you feel righteous in striking back. You know, say someone, I don't know, say your, say, okay, here's a good one. Say you're your spouse, you're, say you're a woman and you're married. Well, just say your spouse, your, your husband or your wife, you're married for 20 years and you, you de- you've dedicated your entire life to your spouse and you've, you've you know paid their way through graduate school or something and you've cleaned up after them and you've, you've just given them a lot of stuff. And then one day you discover that they've been cheating on you for the entire marriage with like 10 people. One day they, you, you open up their phone and you find all these texts and you start reading and you discover that the entire marriage they've been cheating on you. Well, not a lot of people would say it would be wrong to take your spouse's possessions and throw them out into the a road or to light them on fire or to take his or her favorite thing and destroy it. You know, if you if if your friend came to you and, you know, your friend she comes to you and says, "Oh my god, so I just discovered that my husband has been cheating on me for 20 years with all these different women. And, and I was so angry that I, I took his signed baseball by Willie Mays and I, I burned it in the fireplace. If, if you're the friend of this woman, you're not going to say, whoa, 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 a signed baseball by Willie Mays? What's wrong with you? You're going to be like, holy shit, that guy deserved it that guy deserves much more horrible things to happen to him you should you should take all his stuff and throw it out into the into the yard you should post on facebook about how much of an asshole he is i mean that's revenge that is absolutely revenge but we as a society tend to gauge re- some revenge as justified well if you if your perceptions are so distorted due to early abuse and abandonment that you feel extremely abandoned by someone in this way, then you are going to feel justified in seeking revenge against that person through hostility or through finding that thing that is going to really hurt that person's feelings. And so that's what the borderline trait will do, is that when they perceive wrongly and irrationally and distortedly that they are being abandoned by someone in an extreme manner. It triggers them and they seek revenge and they seek to hurt and they will be hostile and they will say hurtful things, not because they're hurtful people, but because they feel justified because of how hurt they feel that they've uh, become because of your actions. And, but you're sitting over there going, what did I do? I thought I was being nice. And then all of a sudden he or she just started hurting my feelings. Why is that? You know, it, so again, it's common to believe that people with borderline are just evil, but in reality, they're just suffering so much that they resort to those things. Because who wouldn't when you feel that way? When when you feel that you've been hurt that badly by somebody, and and research shows this. A study by Miskowitz at Al in 2015 this year found that triggers to borderline personality uh, disorder symptoms include one being rejected being betrayed, being abandoned, being offended, and being disappointed. Two, having one's self-concept threatened. Three, being in a boring situation. And four, being alone. So again, they th- these researchers found that borderline personality disorder symptoms, things like feelings of abandonment, emptiness, and hostility, and impulsivity, and these kinds of and suicidal ideation and self-harm, these symptoms are triggered by being rejected by someone, being betrayed by someone, being abandoned by someone, being offended by someone, being, and being disappointed in someone. Or having your self-concept threatened, meaning that somebody is saying something about you that threatens your self-concept. Or being in a boring situation. I find this to be the most interesting finding of this study, that when someone with borderline personality disorder is bored, that might trigger their, their symptoms. And I guess that makes sense, because if you're bored, you have to face yourself. And if you don't have a sense of self, then the emptiness can be quite scary and painful, and then that might trigger the symptoms. And also being alone, which is similar to being bored. All right. The way I see it, basically, this is this is my formulation of how to understand borderline personality disorder. So, So stick with me on this. The way I see it, basically, when children are between 18 months and 30 months, they are struggling with the balance between closeness and engulfment. And as they develop and experiment and work it out, the parent must be able to handle rejection from the child and the neediness of the child. They need to handle both the rejection of the child because the child will reject them and they need to be able to handle the clinginess from a child when a child is like desperate for touching and loving and attention. They need to be able to handle both of these extremes in a helpful way. And if you're a parent out there, you totally understand this. Your two-year-old... Your 18-month-year-old will, at times, want all of your attention and be very needy, and then at other times, just hate you, and they just want to run free, and they, they don't want you to touch them, and they don't want you to hold them, and they reject you completely. This is, you know, it's a common developmental phase. The children are learning how to manage that distance and, and that closeness. And so it's an important phase, and parents need to be able to handle that uh, effectively. And if the parent cannot handle these little, little rejections and the annoying clinginess, then the parent will react poorly, which over time does not allow the child to develop correctly. Essentially, these, these children become stuck at this phase of early childhood. Part of their personality is forever stuck as a two-year-old. And as a result, they are somewhat delusional in the way a two-year-old is delusional. You know, if if you tell a two-year-old that they have to go to bed and they don't want to go to bed, they will fall apart. And it's not an act. They completely fall apart emotionally. Since their personality has not yet developed into maturity, they literally believe that their world is coming to an end. Now, sometimes kids are manipulating, but not always, right? When they're having a genuine tantrum, which they often will have these, they react as if you have committed the worst act of all time against them. You have betrayed them. You know, how dare you make me go to bed? You know, you are the worst parent of all time and the children, they'll get angry and they'll get rageful. They might even spit in your face. Again, this is very common for two-year-olds and there's varying degrees of this. Uh, so when you, when you tell them they have to go to bed and they fall apart, they get angry and rageful. They might spit in your face. They might try to physically harm you. They, they literally hate you in that moment. They believe their anger is justified because you have wronged them. Even though you've given them everything since birth, they don't see that in that moment because they're not mature. They're two years old. They don't, they haven't developed that yet. You know, you feed them and love them and give them anything they want. But because their personality has not yet developed into maturity, they cannot see you as anything but a horrible person in that moment. When you wrong them and they cross over into the bad parent perception, they can only remember the bad moments and they react accordingly. Well... If children are not parented adequately during this phase, these children might later develop borderline traits or full-blown borderline personality disorder, which is is just an adult version of this two-year-old phase. Now, before I go on, I want to emphasize that we all have an inner two-year-old, and we all from time to time have immature tantrums. If you push someone hard enough, they will absolutely exhibit borderline emotional reactivity, it's just a matter of degree for people with borderline personality disorder. They experience this emotional reactivity more often, but it's something that we all do. People with borderline just do it more often because they never felt truly secure in their earlier relationships. And if, we, and if we help them feel secure, feel secure, we can help them move beyond this phase. And if you, and if you remember one thing, remember this. People with borderline suffer deeply because they frequently perceive that they are being abandoned and rejected unfairly. This is the central feature that I focus on. When I lose my way with borderline clients, which is easy to do since borderline clients often trigger our own abandonment issues in ourselves, when I lose my way with them, I remind myself that they feel abandoned by me and I am therefore tasked with helping them to feel accepted and cared for by me. So even though they are trying to recreate their original abandonment by making me feel the urge to run away from them, I need to take a deep breath and provide a corrective emotional experience for them, and I need to remind myself that everything is okay even though they are accusing me of being a terrible therapist. That's just their way of giving me an opportunity to provide them with caring. Their way of asking for me to care about them is to say that I'm a terrible therapist. They're not saying I'm a terrible therapist. They're, they're actually, it's a, it's a veiled attempt, a extreme attempt uh, to ask me to care about them, to prove that I actually do care. Now, and therapists are, you know, trained to do this sort of thing. And you can imagine when they do this in the real world, it doesn't work so well. When you tell people they're, they're terrible, people don't tend to react well to that. But, but that's really what's happening is they're, they're so desperate for attachment and security and for someone to be dedicated to them that they feel so vulnerable that what ends up coming out of their mouth is quite hostile. But deep down, they're actually desperately asking for you to be nice to them. Because if I can remain caring in the face of such emotional turmoil, then I must truly care, which is what they're looking for. And if I prove myself over many sessions, they will become convinced that they are lovable and that others can be trusted. But this takes time and it takes a lot of effort. And if you, and you have to trust the process and you have to believe in yourself as a therapist. If you have, if you have a significant crack in your self-esteem as a therapist, it will become exploited and you will crumble under the pressure. That is why if you're going to work with borderline clients, you must go through a lot of personal therapy and continually work on your differentiation and continually attend to your own attachment needs in your personal life. Because if you, if you are not securely attached to your loved ones, the threat that borderline clients present will disorient you and you will have so much difficulty managing that you will become very destructively emotional, So again, if you remember one thing, remember that borderline clients suffer greatly from their over-perception of abandonment, and then they react accordingly accordingly with hurt and anger. And if we can prove to them that we will never abandon them, then they will get better and their symptoms will subside. Also remember the concept of projective identification. In a nutshell, when we feel inner pain... We use various defense mechanisms, one of which is projective identification. And when people with borderline feel the pain of abandonment, they will resort to projective identification as a way of reducing their pain. Through projective identification, they recreate their original abandonment, the original abandonment they felt as a child. They make you feel abandoned and worthless by attacking you, and they are enacting their internalized abandoning parent. In other words, it's a little complicated, but in other words, when they were a child, they internalized the relationship that they experienced with their abandoning parent. They internalized that. They brought that in. They saw the other person as being rejecting, and they saw themselves as being rejectable and rejected. This became internalized over time and became a fixed part of their psyche, so inside their psyche, they have a very strong introject or a very strong relationship representation of one side being rejected because they're worthless and the other side being abandoning because they're, they're hurtful. And when triggered, they will recreate this dyad with you. They will make you feel the way that they felt as a child. They will make you feel worthless and rejected and they behave as the rejecting parent. But in reality, they have both sides within themselves. But these two conflictual elements create tension and pain within them, so they externalize the dyad by making you feel like one of the elements. It's a fantasy that this actually will help the ego, but it actually doesn't in reality. But it it creates a temporary distraction to the psyche for them by externalizing something that they originally internalized. And at other times, they might make you feel guilty for having rejected or abandoned them while they identify with the rejecting side of that dyad. And so they might cause you to abandon them while they identify with the victim role. And all this can be called projective identification. And again, projective identification is a defense against inner pain and turmoil. It's something that is used to relieve pain, deep pain. So if we can help people with borderline feel less in inner turmoil, they will utilize projective identification less often. So let's look at the DSM description from this perspective that I've provided. So again, the DSM says a pervasive pattern of instability of interpersonal relationships. So it says, you know, a longstanding pattern of unstable uns- uh, relationships, of unstable self-image and, and unstable emotions. And this is, you know, this is what we can observe from the outside, lots of chaos in relationships and self-image and emotion. But again, the reason for that is abandonment. The DSM doesn't speculate or doesn't provide any guidance about where this all comes from. It just, it just bases it on observation. And again, looking at the specific Symptoms in the DSM, frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. So again, if you were abandoned as a child and you're highly sensitive to that, and you see abandonment all around you, you will do everything you can to avoid abandonment, even if it's not real. Another, another symptom in the DSM is a pattern of unstable and intense relationships alternating between loving the person and hating the person. And again, this is due to that arrested development in the maturation of the person because they had a complicated relationship with their parents when they were young. They never developed the ability to see people as not black and white, but gray. And so they will alternate between the all-good mother and the all-bad mother. Another symptom of D- in the DSM characterizing borderline is an identity disturbance, so an unstable self-image. We've gone over that. It also identifies that they're impulsive in the DSM. And this one is not related to just brain impulsivity. But when you are suffering and when you have been triggered, you are going to act impulsively either as a way of trying to protect yourself or as a way of trying to distract yourself. So the the impulsivity is not because they're just inherently impulsive. They're impulsive because they're suffering. It all comes from that suffering of feeling abandoned by people. Another symptom in the DSM is suicidal behavior, gestures and threats, and self-mutilating behavior. And again, we've talked about this before. When you are suffering so greatly and you can't see any way out, and no one seems to be helping you, then it's frequent for everyone to start thinking about suicide because that will relieve the pain or it will take it away. You know, And self-mutilating behavior is a process by which you cut and then it releases certain chemicals in the brain that actually numb your pain. So if you're feeling emotional pain and you give yourself physical pain, then it'll signal the brain that you need to Uh, you know, give you a pain relief and that pain relief will take away the physical pain and the emotional pain. So what sometimes people will say about people with borderline is, Oh, they're so manipulative. All they talk about is suicide and they use suicide to threaten everyone. And they never really actually try to commit suicide. It's all just a bunch of fake manipulation. But again, it's because they're suffering so greatly that they resort to that. Another, another, DSM symptom here is emotional instability which we've already gone over chronic feelings of emptiness and intense anger and again the intense anger is due to the overperception of abandonment and then the last here is paranoid ideation which we've gone over and dissociative symptoms okay so i hope that i've provided some understanding of borderline. We've talked about the history. We've talked about how to see it, how to understand borderline. The third thing I want to talk about is how to treat borderline. Many people in my field actually think that you can't treat borderline. This is a highly ignorant statement, and it's ignorant of the empirical research. In actuality, there are a number of different psychodynamic treatment models that have been shown to be effective with borderline, However, it should be said that classical psychoanalysis is not likely to work, according to empirical evidence. And purely supportive therapy is also not likely to work. So if you're just purely supportive of the client, that's that's not an effective strategy. And again, classical psychoanalysis will also tend not to work. But research has found that when borderline patients are treated effectively, they can show significant change within just one year. So even though many clinicians are saying it's, you know, useless to work with borderline people, according to the research, when they're treated effectively, they can show significant change within just a year. Research has also found that patients with borderline personality disorder have a better prognosis than many patients with mood disorders like depression and bipolar. So again, you know, no one would say, oh, that person's depressed, he's hopeless, they would say, oh, he's depressed. We need to get him into therapy. We need to get him medication. We need to get him into a group. We need to da-da-da-da. You know, we have hope that we can help this person with depression or bipolar. You know, we, we have hope. You know, get him to a therapist. And if you have borderline, same thing. And there's some research that has found that therapy actually is more effective for for borderline than it is for depression, which I can actually say empirically or anecdotally for myself is, is somewhat true. Depression can be quite tenacious. Borderline can as well, but 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 it's certainly not a lost cause by any means. Research has also found that in order for treatment to be effective, it must be long term over a number of years, and I have found this as well, that in order you can't do short term borderline treatment. It has to be long-term, and meaning over a number of years. Also, research has found that good supervision is critical. The supervision needs to be structured and ongoing, and the supervisor needs to understand borderline personality disorder very well. So again, research has found that patients can get better, uh, that they can often improve faster than mood disorders, that it needs to be over a number of years The treatment and there needs to be good supervision regarding treatment specifics research has found that all effective treatments of borderline personality disorder had the following eight characteristics so effective treatments of borderline are well structured the treatments devote considerable effort to enhancing compliance number three they have a clear focus number four They're theoretically coherent to both therapist and client. Number five, they're relatively long-term. Number six, they encourage powerful attachment between therapist and client. Number seven, the therapist takes an active role. Number eight, they are well-integrated with other services. So let's go over this again. So number one, good borderline treatment is well-structured. This essentially has to do with the frame of therapy. You can't be all loosey-goosey with the frame. Well-structured therapies tend to have regular appointments, say, every week. And they tend to happen at the same time every week. And they tend to look the same. They're in the same office. The therapist is very dedicated to providing stability to that time. That the therapist doesn't introduce a whole bunch of new things to it. Some clients might want that and benefit from that. Borderline clients need stability, so it needs to be very well structured. And the second thing that effective borderline treatments involve is that they're devoted, that they devote considerable effort to enhancing compliance, meaning that a lot of effort is put forth by the therapist to help the client to be compliant with the therapy, meaning that the therapist spends a lot of, trying, lot of time trying to help the client to dedicate themselves to the process. So because if you don't do that, many borderline clients, once they're triggered by abandonment, which they will be eventually, if not very quickly, they won't, they'll stop coming to therapy or they'll futz around with appointments or something. And so the therapy needs to spend a lot of time helping the client to dedicate themselves to the process. So well structured, considerable effort on enhancing compliance. And number three is having a clear focus. So the therapy, the therapist, and the client have to have an agreed, very clear focus. There's something that they're focusing on. It's not, it's not just every session is about a random exploration. It has to have a clear focus. Number four, that the therapy is theoretically coherent to both therapist and client. In other words, the client and the therapist have to basically understand what is happening in therapy and that they both have to understand that it's it's the right thing and that they agree to it. And that's a subtle thing, but that's an important element. Another thing, number five, it's relatively long-term, as I was talking about before. Effective borderline treatments tend to be long-term over a number of years. Uh, Number six, that effective borderline treatments encourage powerful attachment between the therapist and the client. And this seems quite obvious to me, that if it's going to be a corrective emotional experience for the client, the client has to be quite attached to the therapist, and the therapist has to be quite involved in that. The therapist can't be a standoffish person. The therapist has to be emotionally close to the client. And this has to do with the seventh Factor here is the therapist takes an active role. There are different levels of activity a therapist can take. A therapist could be quite inactive, you know mainly a listener and mainly reflective. You know a client is is getting riled up, and the therapist just sits there like a blank state a, bl- a blank slate that 's very inactive as a therapist. But in order for you to be an effective therapist for borderline, you have to take an active role. You have to get into the mix of things. You have to be close with the client. And the last factor here that is uh, common to effective treatments of borderline is the eighth thing, which is being well integrated with other services. In other words, you're collaborating well with their doctor and their psychiatrist and their caseworker or, or whomever is involved. So again, I want to read from someone else writing on Reddit, quote, The biggest misconception that I would like to address is that the general general public and even some doctors still believe that borderline personality disorder is almost impossible to treat, that it is a lifelong death sentence, and that people with the disorder are intentionally manipulative. All of those assumptions are not true at all. Now that this has been discovered, it is entirely possible for someone with borderline to get rid of some of their symptoms so that they don't even qualify for the diagnosis anymore. Lastly, the misinformed public and some doctors believe that those with borderline are purposefully manipulative. This is far from the truth. Manipulation is not a criteria for the disorder. People with borderline are usually very desperate, but not intentionally manipulative if someone with borderline intentionally manipulates, then it's not because of the borderline, end quote. So again, this person is saying, hey, you know, people can get better with borderline and with the proper treatment, it it can work. To, To many people in my field, this is not believed. It's believed that if you have borderline, you'll always have borderline, that you'll never get better. But that's not entirely true. It's, it's, it's true that if you have borderline, you'll always have borderline tendencies. You'll always have some borderline in you, so to speak. But it doesn't mean that you'll always be highly symptomatic, which is a big difference, right? It's sort of like if you've been depressed for 20 years, what's the chance that you're going to find a treatment that is going to completely eliminate your depression? It, that's unrealistic. It's likely that you'll always have a tendency to, to get at least a little bit depressed, but can we do something to reduce the symptoms significantly? Absolutely. And it's the same with Borderline. And here's another hopeful story from another Reddit user. Quote, In recent years, things have become slightly better in my family. My mother and I have had a very rocky relationship, but it but it is improving. There are a few things that have helped our relationship. Me learning through therapy how to appropriately express myself and her educating herself on borderline personality disorder and how to best support someone who has it. Communication has always been difficult between my mother and I. A former therapist suggested that we write letters to each other if we want to talk about something that could be potentially leading to a fight. This has worked wonders for our relationship, unquote. So again, this provides a lot of hope that people with borderline can get better and can improve their relationships. And this also highlights the fact that Not just the person with borderline needs to go to therapy, but everyone needs to go to therapy around that person as well because everyone can do their part. This also points out one particular intervention that I like to use, which is that when people with borderline are able to sit calmly and write, they often are totally rational and totally functional, shall we say. When they enter into a tense conversation in person, With their spouse or loved one or family member, then they become triggered by the abandonment sensitivity, and then they have a hard time regulating their emotions, and they have a hard time reflecting on the self. But when they're not actually in the vicinity of that person, and they can truly think about what they want to say, sometimes their writing can actually be quite differentiated and quite healthy. It's not always the case for sure. There are people with borderline that can become quite problematic even over email or something. But but some people, if if they're trying to work on things, a good in between measure, but you know, a good way to sort of ramp up to better in person communication is to start with written communication first to see if you can try to uh, effectively communicate in that way. Plus, you can repair a lot of relationships that way. And really, everyone does this right you are in a fight with someone and you feel bad about what you did. And then later on you send them an email or you send them a text and you apologize because it might be easier to send that email or send that text because they're not in the room with you and they're not triggering you. So something that Cohen and Sherwood wrote in 1991, they had an entire book. I mentioned it earlier. Let's see. It's on my, it's on my shelf or there was say becoming a constant object in psychotherapy with the borderline patient. So in that book, they have a main recommendation, and that is to stand still as a therapist. I really agree with this. Their point is, don't try to do something because not much can be done in the short run with a borderline client. This is a, They make the analogy that this is, that it's analogous to being with someone who is seriously ill. You know, you can't fix them. If someone says that they have cancer or something and they're in the hospital. There's no sense running around trying to fix them because you can't do anything about it. Well, the same is true with someone who has borderline. When they come to see you for the first few weeks or first few months, they might appear as though they're in crisis. And so that engages the therapist's urge to start running around trying to help. But it's actually very important to slow down and to be patient and to not get triggered in that way, to have to just stand still is what they say as, as a therapist. Be quiet and don't, do, don't work so hard and don't get it too attached to what's happening week to week because the patient might not actually get better at first. It takes a while. They recommend to reflect empathically what the patient is feeling in that moment. So this is not only empathic, it feels good to receive that from a therapist, but it also helps the client to develop a sense of self. By telling the client what they're feeling, you're actually helping the, the client to develop a sense of self. You do the same with two-year-olds. The two-year-old is having a tantrum about not wanting to go to bed, and you say, you know, a good parenting reflection is to say, Oh, you're, you're very sad that you have to go to bed. I know it's very frustrating. I understand that when you do that for a child, you help them to reflect on themselves and you actually, and you also uh, help them by, by telling them that you see what they are going through, that you know what they're going through. So as a therapist with a borderline client, particularly in the beginning, you want to stick to a lot of empathic reflections You also also want to show a persistent curiosity in their life. So you want to stay curious to what's happening for them, curious about their experience. Again, not only does that feel good, but it also helps them to reflect on themselves. You also want to demonstrate awareness of their difficulties. This is extremely important for people with borderline. It's, It's important for everyone, but very important for people with borderline. People with borderline will often come into therapy complaining a lot about other people or just complaining about life. And it's easy for a therapist to get overwhelmed and to have countertransference of rejection because through projective identification, as a therapist, you're going to start feeling that because they're inducing you to feel that way. It, it's some uh, You'll hear some people who have border. I hear this in novice therapists a lot. They'll say, oh, I have this client and... All she does is complain and complain and she's so negative and it's just driving me crazy. And if we discover through, uh, you know, some investigation that it's possible that the person has borderline, I slow the person, I slow the client or the therapist down and I say, just stay aware of their difficulties. You know, stop trying, stop giving in to the countertransference and become empathic become curious and to and notice their suffering notice what they're going through notice that their life is difficult now you as an outsider might say to yourself boy this person is so negative why are they all why are they always negative all the time i need to help this person to not be so negative but that actually will trigger the client if you criticize them on how negative they are it'll feel like an extreme rejection by them and That's not a good idea to go with that. So again, you just want to stand still, be empathic, be curious, and demonstrate that you're aware of their difficulties. Have faith in the process. Create an atmosphere of caring without the implicit demand that it be reciprocated. That's an important thing. It's like you don't want to demand that the client reciprocate and take care of you. In the same way that a two-year-old, you wouldn't demand that the two-year-old validate your feelings. You want to care for the two-year-old and not put any demands on the two-year-old. You, and Cohen and Sherwood also say that you should, prov- you should provide a dependable attachment. And we've talked about that before. It's a corrective experience. To be a dependable attachment will help them therapeutically. All right, so what's my model? After going over the history and going over how we understand it and providing you some stories and also providing you the research, what's my model? Well, the first thing you need to do to be a good therapist for borderline is to be aware of the disorder. You need to know borderline personality disorder. You need to know projective identification. You need to have a very firm grasp on the disorder itself. And that is done through reading, supervision, consultation, but really the most important thing is you have to experience people with borderline. You can read all you want, but until you actually experience someone with borderline and then read the readings, that's, that's when the real learning begins. Now, for the most part, most therapists, particularly at your internship, will likely come across someone with borderline anyway, so you don't actually have to seek them out, but... Anyway, the first thing is you really just have to be aware of borderline. That's that's the first step. The second thing you need to do, which is really a part of the first thing as well, is you need to manage your counter-transference. Borderline clients will get angry at you. And as I said earlier, they will know your weaknesses. They might even know your weaknesses before you know what they are. And they will hurt your feelings. They will induce you to feel anxiety. They will induce lots of feelings that uh, you will feel when you're treating them. And you need to have a robust, multifaceted management system of your counter-transference. And we've talked about that before in other podcasts, but that's very important. Otherwise, you will crumble, you will suffer, you will get burnout, and the client will suffer. You'll react against the client. You'll reject them. So again, one, be aware of borderline. Number two, have a management of counter-transference. And number three, you need to build the relationship with the with the client. Everything builds upon the foundation of the relationship. And it could take a lot of time. You need to be empathic and curious. And you need to ask the client for feedback. How am I doing? How, how did you receive that? Are you upset? If there's a relationship rupture, which there likely will be, you need to have a very robust approach to repairing that rupture and really spend the time to repair that, ru- that rupture. You need to have positive regard. You need to have all those relationship goodies in order to build a relationship. It's very important. Number four, you need to not push too fast or they will hate you and you'll have a difficult clinical moment. So this is an, a key thing. When as soon as I detect that someone might have borderline traits I instantly slow down. With clients that are that don't have borderline traits I tend to move at a particular pace meaning that when something comes up I'll confront them. You know, if someone doesn't if someone doesn't seem to have borderline in the first session and they say something like oh, you know, my teenager he 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 got one F last year, and oh my God, it just destroyed me. And if if I don't detect a characterological issue, I'll say to the father, I'll say, hey, it sounds like you're being a little tough on him. You know, does is is it possible that you have some high expectations there? And if the father has a good sense of self, and we have at least somewhat of a relationship then my guess is the father will be able to handle that kind of confrontation. And although there might be a, a minor fight, the, the client will likely say, yeah, well, maybe, maybe I'm being a little hard. I don't know. So I can, I can drop something like that in there fairly early without having it destroy the therapy. Whereas someone with borderline, if I were to say that to him, it would be perceived by him as such a rejection And such an abandonment and and such a betrayal that a, a confrontation like that, me saying, hey, I think you're being a little hard on your son, that could be such a threat to our relationship that it might make therapy completely, it might destroy the therapy, basically, because the client might feel so hurt by me that they might not ever come back or they might not ever trust me again. And so you don't want to go too fast with people who have borderline or else nothing will work. Number five, you want to repair relationship ruptures. As I said earlier, this is extremely important because as I said, you will have a relationship rupture and you need to repair them when you make a mistake or you push. So if I did that with a a male borderline client and I said, Oh, it sounds like you're being tough on your kid. And then I get a tremendous amount of pushback from him and he feels very hurt by me. Well, in the next session, I will need to say, okay, I have thought about it, and what I said last week, I realize now that it was really insensitive for me to say that, and I'm really sorry. So you have to be, you have to be sincerely apologetic to your clients. And you don't, you're not fake. You're not making stuff up. You're, you're actually sorry for hurting their feelings. You don't have to say you were wrong. You don't have to say, oh, my God, I'm so wrong for saying that. You don't want to get into the content of that because that will just initiate another argument or something. But you want to really emphasize that you didn't mean to hurt their feelings and that you care a lot about them and that you made a mistake by saying what you said and that you are really trying hard to make them feel cared about and understood. And in that moment, you made a mistake. And so you really want to apologize sincerely because not only will that help the relationship and repair the rupture, but it also proves to the client that you really care. Not a lot of therapists or not a lot of people, for that matter, ever apologize to people with borderline. And so being apologetic sincerely can be not only a great thing for the relationship if it starts to go askew, but it can deepen the relationship and it can be a tremendous uh, opportunity for a corrective experience for the client. Number six, you want to provide corrective experiences. You want to provide compassion. You need to be patient, but you need to be very patient. But you're essentially trying to help the client to internalize something that they were not able to internalize as a child. You want them to internalize a relationship that is containing, that is loving, that is caring, and that is is, um, stable and not abandoning and not betraying. That's good for them. You want them to internalize that. That's what the corrective experience does for them, and that has to be experienced over time. That's why therapy is long-term with people with borderline. So again, number one, be aware of borderline. You have to know it. Number two, manage manage your countertransference. Number three, build a relationship. Number four, don't push too fast. Number five, repair relationship ruptures. Number six, provide corrective emotional experiences. This is perhaps the most important thing. And number seven, You want to challenge cognitions. You don't want to do this early in therapy, but you want to eventually start challenging the way that they're thinking. When they say that they're nothing, you want to challenge that and say, you're not nothing, you're something. I I know that you have a lot of great qualities. When they say that you don't care about them, you want to challenge that and say, actually, I do care about you. I care about you a lot. When you say that I don't care about you, that's just not true. Or when they say no one has ever loved me in my life, you want to start looking for other examples where people have loved them. Because that that cognition, that belief that no one loves them is destructive for them. When they come into therapy, again, once the relationship is very strong, and this could take literally a couple years to develop, but once the relationship is strong and the client comes into therapy and says something about someone at work. You know, they say, oh my God, so you wouldn't believe what someone did at work. And you say, okay, well, tell me what happened. And then from the outside, you're hearing the story and you're thinking that the client might have overreacted or might have created the situation somewhat themselves. You might want to start challenging that. You might want to start helping them to understand how their perceptions might not always be accurate. This is the key. When you are working with people with borderline or as a friend or as a professional, one of the key features that people will say is they will say they see everything so negatively, everything is so negative to them. Well, that's one way of putting it. The way I put it again is that they're over, they, they, they over perceive abandonment and rejection from other people. And because they over perceive abandonment, then that leads to them seeing things very negatively. And so A key component of them recovering is helping them very, very slowly at their pace, helping them understand that just because they feel hurt and abandoned does not mean that they're justified in having that feeling. And again, because clients are very sensitive to rejection, a therapist saying that to a client can actually feel like a rejection and therefore ruin the relationship, and then the client runs away from you. So you have to have a very strong relationship, and you have to move very slowly with this. But once you have, and, and you, I'm not, it doesn't take two years all the time. It could, only, it could take two sessions to develop enough uh, rapport with a client, and I've done that too. I've, I've known borderline traded clients who, after a few sessions, I can talk this way with them. And again, it has to do with telling them, helping them sift through their reactivity, and helping them to understand that their feelings are not always representative of reality. This is something that non-borderline people generally understand, not everybody for sure, but non-borderline clients generally understand that their reactions and their feelings are not always accurate. You know, through experience again as they reflect on their on themselves, they'll say, "Oh boy, last night when so and so did that, I felt like it was important to start screaming at them. And now when I look back on it, boy, do I regret screaming at that person. What was I thinking? Okay, so they have the ability to look back on them, on their behavior and their feelings and say, my feelings were not accurate. My feelings in that moment did not reflect the reality of the situation. I overreacted is what, you know, non-borderline people will say. Well, people with borderline have a really hard time doing that, again, because they lack a sense of self, because they're very sensitive. And so they they don't look back at themselves and say, I overreacted. They say, I always react according to what I should be reacting, because it feels right to them. The same way that a two-year-old doesn't look back on their past behavior and regret things, because they can't reflect on things yet. And so we need to help clients with that. We need to help them reflect on themselves and try to evaluate whether or not their reactivity has evidence or or whether it's reasonable or not. And this is a very difficult thing to develop, but it needs to be developed because that ability to reflect on yourself is a key component to well-being and to relationships. All right, that was number seven. Number eight, we need to help with emotions. We need to help with emotional awareness and emotional regulation. I won't go into the specifics on that, but I hope you know what I'm saying. Number nine, we need to help people make behavioral changes. We need to help them with helpful behavioral changes. Like if they're addicts, we need to help them to reduce their addiction because that's not going to help anything. We need to help them with their acting out, with their hostility. We need to help them to refrain from hostility or refrain from sexual acting out or refrain from suicidal gestures to get love. Instead, we want to help them direct their behavior towards trying to trust other people or speaking from their experience or finding other ways to soothe themselves. So we want to work on their behaviors. That's an important part of really any therapy. Number 10, we need to involve the family. This is a key and often forgotten element of good therapy for anybody. But with people with borderline, you absolutely have to involve their family because their family have been struggling with this person their whole life. And if you can help the family cope through understanding and, and through you know improving communication, then how wonderful could that be for the borderline person? For them to have better relationships could be wonderful because, again, that's what they crave so much. The borderline person is so desperate for closeness with their family that they resort to very strange things to get it. So if you can give them that security, then their symptoms will be reduced. And 11, the last thing... As as I mentioned earlier, you have to work collaboratively with other clinicians. You know, other clinicians will often misdiagnose people with borderline. They'll misdiagnose them with bipolar or antisocial or even anxiety. And they will often over-medicate the the client. You know, someone that presents with a lot of suicidal ideation and self-mutilation and a lot of relationship problems and a lot of sadness, a lot of anger, you'll find that psychiatrists and other people would just throw a lot of medications at it. And the patients might not even be aware that they have a personality disorder themselves. They might actually think, oh, I, I'm very depressed and I need these medications. So they might seek help for the depression or anxiety, which are just symptoms of the borderline. Also, clinicians may be reluctant to diagnose someone with borderline because of the stigma. So they avoid it and they give meds for depression and anxiety rather than saying it's possible that you have borderline personality disorder. Because borderline has so much stigma, the clinician might avoid even bringing it up with the client. Also, patients with severe borderline personality disorder might experience significant transference with different clinicians. In other words... Uh, People with severe borderline might hate one clinician and love another clinician, and this can create a lot of anxiety for the clinicians who are trying to work together. And when clinicians are anxious, they might overprescribe as a way of pleasing the patient and trying to get the patient out the door. Also, some borderline personality disorder patients present with a lot of suicidal ideation and behavior, and this can freak out clinicians, which can result in overprescription of medications. So this is something that I've seen a lot is just massive amounts of, of, of medications for people with borderline. And, it, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it, it often the side effects often are not helpful to the treatment. So if you first start working with someone who has borderline, you want to start working collaboratively slowly over time trying to really figure out if all those medications are actually helpful. So again to review my model here, one, awareness of borderline. Two, manage your countertransference. Number three, build a relationship. Number four, don't go too fast. Number five, repair relationship ruptures that they you know because they will happen. Number six, provide corrective emotional experiences. This is the key. This is the most important thing. Number seven, you want to challenge unhelpful cognitions. Number eight, you want to help with emotional regulation. Number nine, you want to provide behavioral changes. You want to start working on their behaviors. Number 10, you want to involve the family. And number 11, you want to work collaboratively with other clinicians, including the prescriber. All right, so we've talked about the history. We've talked about how to understand borderline. We've talked about how to treat it. The last thing I want to say, talk about here is how to deal with someone with borderline in your personal life. Now, some of you might be thinking, you know, I think that someone in my life might be borderline. How do I know? Well, to see if someone close to you has borderline, ask yourself these questions. And there's no way of measuring this, but just contemplate these questions. Do you feel like you're always walking on eggshells around this person? Do you feel bullied by them? Do you worry that anything you say will turn into a fight? Does this person frequently feel hurt by you? Does this person often reject others when they do something small, like they do a small thing and they will reject them very quickly? Does this person have excessive worry about what other people think about them? Do they seem very anxious about what other people think about them? Does this person vacillate between seeing you as all good and then all bad? Does this person sometimes instantly fall in love with someone and then instantly hate them? Do they have a long list of people who have betrayed them in the past? Does this person accuse you of saying hurtful things that you never said? Does this person have extreme negative emotions when provoked? Do they seem very sensitive to rejection and abandonment? Or do you feel crazy around this person? Do you feel very anxious around this particular person? These are all questions that I recommend asking yourself when you're trying to figure out if someone has borderline because if, you, if you're walking on eggshells, if you feel bullied, if you're worried that anything's going to turn into a fight with this person, if the person frequently feels hurt by you, if they vacillate between loving you and hating you, if they have a list of people who have betrayed them in the past, you know these are all signs that someone has at least borderline traits. So if you've determined that someone has borderline close to you, What do you do? How do you deal with that? Because as a therapist, you know, I only have to deal with that client, that person for an hour a week, right? Or a couple hours a week. But what if you're actually married to someone like this? Or your child is this? Or your parent is this? What do you do? Well, often an important realization is that you just have to draw boundaries. And that might hurt the person with borderline but it has to do with what I was talking about earlier in terms of having a very well-structured relationship. You need to have firm boundaries. And no matter where you draw the line, it's likely to bother the person with borderline. And depending on what you want in your life, you might have to draw the boundary very firmly and very, uh, let's see, very. you might have to limit your time with the person quite a bit. So, I was talking with someone earlier, actually a therapist who was asking my advice about this. And she is dealing with a family member who has borderline, or seemingly anyway. I can't diagnose the family member because they're not my patient, but seemingly it's someone with borderline. And so, you know, we were talking about it and problem solving. And I just said, you know, it might be best just to r- limit your time with this person. And this novice therapist says, yeah, but, you know, she's going to really hate that. She's going to really hate me for that. And I said, well, doesn't she hate you all the time, no matter what you do? And the novice therapist says, yeah, I guess so. So it doesn't really matter where you draw the boundary. The person isn't going to like it regardless. And so sometimes to protect yourself from the pain, you just have to draw a very firm boundary. Now, at the same time... If you can, you want to try to do some other things to try to have a good relationship with this person. But again, when I talk very quickly with someone who asks me about this sort of thing, I say, "Eh," you know, it's not a good thing for the person with borderline to do this, but for your own self-preservation, you might have to draw a firm boundary. And that's for your sake. And you deserve that because you deserve to be happy. And if this person is, is really bringing you down and you're doing everything you can and nothing is working, then sometimes you just have to cut bait and just figure out how you're going to live your life in a functional way. Along these lines, you don't want to take their abuse. If they're hostile and abusive, you don't have to take that shit because you don't deserve it. So again, you deserve to have the boundaries that you deserve. And so just know that if someone in your life is being hurtful to you, you have the right to establish boundaries. Now, what if you want to interact with them and you, you want to have a relationship with them and you, you want to have the best sort of relationship with them? Well, here's what you can do. The main thing is to have patience and to really interpret their behavior in the ways that I have described. Instead of seeing them as manipulative, you want to see them as desperate because they're, they're in pain. Instead of seeing them as controlling, you want to see them as grasping for security, you know. But if you interpret their behavior that way, it becomes more tolerable, right? When a two-year-old, you know, again, using that example, it's time to go to bed, Johnny. It's, it's eight o'clock. It's your bedtime. And the two-year-old is watching TV or playing video games or something and says, I don't want to. You can't. Uh, and, and totally freaks out. You don't look at that child and say, holy crap, I am done parenting this child. I am, I am going to give this kid away for adoption because no one talks to me like that. Right? You don't say that. You look at Johnny and you go, well, obviously, he's just having a tantrum. He's having a tough time right now. I still love him, and he'll be better in the morning or he'll be better in five minutes or something. You just trust that they'll be better. Well, it's the same with people with borderline. When you trigger them, usually, in all likelihood, in in the not-too-distant future, the person with borderline, the triggering event will subside, and they'll recover, and they won't feel as hostile towards you as they do in that moment. Another thing that might help is try to be as literal as possible. It really just depends on the borderline person, but sometimes it can help to be very literal, to say things very explicitly. Like, okay, it sounds like you're saying that you feel like I have hurt your feelings. Is that right? Okay, well, I'm really very, very sorry for that. And I care about you a lot. So you're being very concrete and very explicit in your language. If you beat around the bush with someone who has borderline, they might not get the message. So you might have to be very straightforward with them. Also, you want to try to forgive them. You want to try to understand them, that, that they're actually suffering quite a bit. You know, an analogy, it's not an, it's not an exact analogy, but if, again, someone was just diagnosed with terminal cancer, and they're in a very bad mood, and they are in despair, and you come to them, and they're in the hospital, and you say, hey, how's it going? And they say to you, what do you mean, how's it going? I was just you know, it's going terrible. The, the hospital sucks. My doctor sucks. The TV sucks. The food sucks. Everything sucks. My life sucks. Well, you're not going to go, well, fuck you then and walk out of the hospital room. You're going to have patience with that. And you're going to forgive that because you understand, whoa, this person is suffering. They were just told that they're going to die soon. They're not in a good place. And so I I don't need for them to apologize to me for that. I I forgive them already and I'm going to have patience. Well, the same goes for someone with borderline. When they are symptomatic, they feel that way. They're 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 in a perpetual state of feeling abandoned and hurt and rejected. And they're going to come at you with a bad mood sometimes. And so when they do that, if you can see thing, if you have enough compassion and energy to do so, You want to forgive them even though they haven't apologized for it. Also, uh, you want to, this is a key understanding, you want to know that they really do love you and they perhaps love you more than anyone else loves you. (laughs) Because they have been so abandoned in their life, they are more desperate for closeness than anyone else. That's why when they finally find an attachment that feels good to them, they completely latch on to that person because they're so thirsty for security and acceptance. And so so really remember that when you're interacting with them, even though it might not feel that way all the time, that they need you more than anyone else needs you. I mean, I'm exaggerating to some extent, but they, they need you a lot more... Than you might think is possible and they love you and they want to be close to you. And the thing, the nice things you say to them, they drink it up more than other people. When you give them a compliment, they take that in so much more than other people. Again, because they were neglected in this way as children and and they need that stuff. So really frame in your mind that they, they deeply care about you, even though they might hurt your feelings sometimes. And they desperately want to be close to you specifically. And the last thing that I'll say is you need to get support. You need to find supportive people to help you in your efforts to be in a relationship with someone with borderline. If you're isolated in a relationship with someone with borderline, you will go crazy. Guaranteed. You, I've seen it happen. You will slowly, you know, go into the depths of of insanity. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm using the word uh, in a joking way, but y- you will suffer quite a bit, and you'll lose perspective, and you will likely become, to some extent, I don't know. You'll just—it's just not good to be alone <laughs> in anything, really. But but when if you have say, a spouse that has borderline traits, you need to have proper support. And it's not just the kind of support where you just go and complain to someone. You need someone to help you with your patience, to help you with understanding, to help you to draw good boundaries, to help you be literal, to help you with all the things I've been talking about. You need someone to help you with that. And you need someone to validate your feelings. This is another major thing. So if your spouse has borderline and that person is hurting your feelings every now and then. You need to go to someone and say, okay, so this happened to me, and and I don't know, I'm feeling really anxious or I'm feeling really hurt. You need that person to say, yeah, I could see why you'd feel hurt about that. The reason why you need this really in any situation is because when you're in the midst of the person with borderline, the person with borderline won't necessarily recognize how they're hurting you. And when you are in a situation like that, if you're being hurt by somebody and they never acknowledge that they're hurting you or that, that, that you don't deserve to be hurt, then you start actually believing that it's your fault. But it isn't your fault because the person it's, it's not anyone's fault. It's the fact that the person with borderline is extremely over-perceiving uh, rejection and abandonment. And so you need to go to someone else and have them help you with that. But again, not in a way of talking crap about the person with borderline, but helping you and supporting you in your efforts to love that person who's been diagnosed with borderline. So again, boundaries, uh, don't take their abuse. You don't deserve to be abused. You want to be patient. You want to be literal and concrete. You want to forgive. You uh, don't want to expect them to apologize. You want to remind yourself that this person loves you deeply, perhaps more than anybody else, and you want to get support. All right. Well, that was a marathon thing that I just did, talking about borderline. I hope the patron is happy with this episode. I've been wanting to do an episode on borderline personality disorder for a long, long time. So I'm glad the patron asked me to do this because gave me an opportunity to really dive into it. I spent a lot of time prepping for this episode. I hope you can tell that. Again, I talked about the history. I talked about how to understand borderline. I talked about the treatment, and I talked about what to do if someone close to you has borderline. And what could I say about the summary? Again, people can treat effectively people with borderline. There are effective treatments for borderline. And again, just to review those elements of effective treatment, research has found that they need to be well structured. They need to spend a lot of time getting the client to be compliant. That it needs to be a clear focus. They need to be theoretically coherent between therapist and client. They need to be long term. They need to encourage a powerful attachment between the therapist and client. The therapist needs to take an active role and the the therapy needs to be well-integrated with other services. And again, my model is similar to this, but add some things in that you need to be aware of your... You need to be aware of borderline. You need to know it forwards and backwards. You need to manage your counter-transference. You need to build a relationship. Don't push too fast. You want to repair relationship ruptures. You want to provide corrective emotional experiences. You want to challenge cognitions. You want to work on emotional regulation you want to provide helpful behavioral changes, you want to involve the family, and you want to work collaboratively with other clinicians. And let's see, how can I sum up the understanding of, of Borderline again? What's the final word on the understanding? Again, as I've said in multiple different ways, multiple different times in this podcast episode, the key understanding to Borderline is the feeling of abandonment that they feel. Everything stems from that. If you understand that a person with borderline is frequently and perhaps perpetually feeling abandoned by people close to them, truly abandoned and betrayed, if you understand that, then it usually explains all of the rest of their reactivity and their behavior. It explains why they 're sad. it explains why they 're angry. It explains why they seek revenge sometimes. It explains everything that 's the key. You have to understand that they feel abandoned, and it 's not that they 're making it up and it 's not their fault that they feel abandoned it 's because of early childhood difficulties or perhaps a genetic issue too um, some Some have argued, and there 's been some evidence that some people are quote-unquote born borderline in that their parenting seems to be quite adequate, but for some reason their biology or God knows what, or perhaps they were traumatized, raped at the age of eight or something, that borderline developed in relation to that betrayal. But regardless of whether or not it has to do with genetics or environment or whatever, for whatever reason, they feel abandoned truly, deeply, horribly betrayed by people around them frequently in a way that you've never felt before, perhaps. You perhaps have never felt as abandoned as they feel on a daily basis. And if you felt as abandoned as they did, you would be sad and you would scrape and you would get paranoid and you would need continual reassurance that someone loves you and that someone's not going to leave you because you're so scared of being abandoned, as we all are. But when you're raised properly or your genetics are such that you develop normally, you generally have a sense that people aren't going to leave you. You just generally have that trust, even though there might not be any direct evidence before you. But people with borderline, they are in a constant state of worrying about that and therefore need a constant stream of reassurance. But that can be very tiresome to people, and it can put a lot of strain on relationships. So unless the person with borderline gets treated properly by an expert, which is actually, they're few and far between, unless they get proper treatment and really buy into treatment, they're going to continually go from relationship to relationship and and creating a lot of havoc. But there is hope. And research shows that they can get better. And so to the patron that wrote in, again, I commend you so much for having the ability to reflect on your experience and to say to yourself, boy, I've really, I've really been tough on my therapist. And maybe I should apologize. That is just so commendable. I, I just feel so, it just warms my heart to think about you being compassionate towards your therapist. That's just so special and so sweet of you. If you apologize to your therapist, tell me about it because that will just make my day to know that because again, if the therapist is anything like me, which God knows, then the therapist considers their, their work as a therapist to be extremely meaningful to them. You know, therapists are privileged people often. They have the privilege of going back to school and becoming educated and all that kind of stuff. And they could have done anything. They could have worked for Starbucks or Microsoft or something. But they decided to become a therapist like myself because they want to make a difference. And how wonderful could it be if they knew they made a difference in a patient's life, in a, particularly someone with borderlines, particularly someone who's suffering so much, And I think I said this in another podcast where I was talking about someone with borderline that I was treating, and she wrote to me. She wrote a letter to me uh, toward the end of our treatment, and she thanked me very, very sweetly for all of the work that I did with her. And I'm going to cry just thinking about it, but, but I was so touched by this letter, and my therapy with her meant so much to me because I cared so much about her and I was so dedicated to her treatment for so many years that when she wrote that letter, it was so important to me. I'm not just a therapist for my job. I'm a therapist because I believe in love and I believe in the human spirit and I believe in us and I believe in caring, and I believe in compassion. I believe that we can all make this world a better place. And this letter was concrete evidence of that, that all of my effort and all of my student loans and all of the times that I was dealing with countertransference and all the struggles, it all was worth it. And so you, patron, you are contemplating thanking your therapist or you're contemplating apologizing or you're contemplating being direct in that way i encourage you to do that greatly i encourage you to do that because again if he's anything like me he'll he'll love it and it'll it'll really be important to him and again that might deepen your relationship and even make your experiences with him even more corrective for you so that does it for another episode of psychology in seattle thanks for joining me on this long journey And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really deserve it.